Uh, Kana and Kendall and I, we are, we are very happy and very excited to be with you tonight. Uh, I'm honored uh, to be asked to be able to come over here and lead a discussion tonight on Jesus as a teacher. And we bring you greetings from about, I guess it's two miles-ish down Atlanta Highway, the faraway land uh, over there on Faulkner's campus. Uh, so greetings from over there. Uh, as Will said, Kane and I have been here for about a year now, and we have really enjoyed, we feel blessed uh, and very thankful to be able to work in this community, certainly at university, but also alongside other congregations in the area, Dalreda uh, definitely being one of those. Uh, Billy and I have been great friends for a long time uh, when we went through undergrad together at Faulkner. Uh, Billy is actually probably the foremost reason that I actually graduated college. Um, if I hadn't been able to either pick Billy's brain or just cheat off of his answers, there's a good chance I wouldn't have passed. So he's been instrumental in helping me get started uh, in my first year at university, and I hope that he keeps the advice coming. Uh, certainly uh, wish him uh, safe travels as they come back from Italy. And just in case you weren't convinced that Billy was smart, the man has planned out very strategically to be not just out of town, but quite literally out of the country the week that I'm over here. <laughs> so he's smart enough to get out of here uh, when I'm over here speaking. So uh, that says a lot about his level of intelligence. But tonight we're uh, talking about Jesus as a teacher. And I love the theme that you guys have for the summer series of diving into this question of who is Jesus and looking at all the different roles that he was able to fill uh, during his time here on earth and certainly the roles that he continues to fill now at the right hand of God. And I'm going to be honest with you, this topic of Jesus as a teacher that I have tonight is very intimidating for me. Jesus in the New Testament is called a teacher about 30 times, although not every time was genuine. There are a few times when his opponents were sort of making fun of him or mocking him by calling him rabbi. But that term rabbi was one that was reserved for a place of a certain degree of honor in the Jewish world. So if you were a rabbi, it's not like you were uh, just a teacher, and not to downplay the roles of teachers now that serve like in our school systems, but there was even an added layer of respect on top of the respect that we give to teachers now because these men were viewed as spiritual guides. They were viewed as very wise very intelligent men who could guide you closer to God. So that term rabbi has a lot of significance. And what's interesting is even a lot of the people who didn't believe Jesus was the son of God did believe he was a great teacher. And they would call him, they would address him as rabbi. Now maybe they didn't believe he's the son of God, but they believed he was a great teacher. And that phenomenon really hasn't changed for the last 2,000 years. You're not gonna talk to many people who are, um, I guess, have a very high level of awareness. You're not going to talk to many people who don't recognize the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, a great teacher. And as a matter of fact, most people will tell you that Jesus is the greatest teacher that's ever walked the face of the planet. And when you give it just a moment's thought, it makes a lot of sense, right? We are tonight, I want you to consider how many millions of people tonight and on Sunday are all going to gather together in the name of Jesus. Now, whether we agree with the way they interpret the teachings of Jesus or not, consider how many millions of people will meet tonight and also on Sunday, whether in the morning or at night, in the name of this man who was a poor carpenter from a very small, insignificant town 
2,000 years ago, just about halfway across the world from where we sit now. And here we are 2,000 years later, after that man had just three years, just three years of teaching people and of trying to mold them into this image of God. Just three years of that has led to 2,000 years of mankind being so focused on every single thing that he taught. We're still debating today. Some of the greatest discussions that we have are still about the teachings of Christ. So he certainly is, whether we believe he's the son of God or not, he certainly is one of the most influential, if not the most influential teacher that has ever lived. So he is the master teacher. That's why this topic is an intimidating one. How on earth can we fully describe and discuss uh, all the ways in which Jesus was the master teacher or what made him a master teacher or what we can even learn from that? I know one of the most powerful lessons I've ever heard, I was at Freed Hart, even though it was at Freed Hartman, uh, I was at Freed Hartman's Horizons camp that they have in the summer for teenagers. I'm sure some of these guys have been. This was about eight years ago, so y'all probably would have been in what, like the third, fourth grade? I don't know, maybe some of you guys. But a long time ago-ish, and John David Schwartz, who's a youth minister up in Tennessee, he got up and this was his topic. His topic was Jesus the Teacher. And he got up in front of everyone and the screen behind him read and seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain and he sat down and he began to teach them saying and then he quoted the Sermon on the Mount. Word for word. No extra commentary. No extra discussion. No word of invitation afterward. He just gave the words of the master teacher in their original form to that crowd gathered there together all those years later the words from long ago And when I was preparing for this lesson, I thought, man, what what an awesome way to talk about Jesus as the teacher, uh, to just bring out some of his teachings and to discuss the things that he taught and maybe not even to comment on them, but to let the words of Jesus do all the teaching. And certainly we want to consider what Jesus taught, but tonight I kind of want to talk about Jesus as a teacher from a different angle. I want to talk about not only what he taught, and certainly we will come across that tonight in the text, not only what he taught but how he taught it, and also why he taught it. And here's the reason I'm coming at it from that angle. If you want to go to Matthew chapter 28, this you might not even have to turn there. You might have this memorized backwards and forwards. Uh, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go unto all nations, or go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I do want to make mention of the fact that in James 3, in verse 1, James does say, not many of you should become teachers, brothers, because you know that we will incur a stricter judgment. But James is talking about teaching in a specific sense, probably in a formal sense, maybe in a congregational worship. But in a general sense, though, Everyone who has, who wears the name of Christ, everyone who says they are a Christian, we're all teachers in some capacity. Certainly, we wouldn't argue that this great commission only applied to the 11 apostles that were there, right? We say, no, this applies to everyone. We're all supposed to go out and seek and save the lost. We're all supposed to go out and help people come converted, uh, come to a relationship with Christ. But seldom, I think, do we talk about that last little phrase there. When he explains how we make these disciples, he says, baptizing them and teaching them 
all that I have commanded you. So there is this real sense of responsibility for us to be teachers just like Christ was. And certainly, as Paul gives us the charge in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, we are to imitate Christ not only in these spiritual disciplines like the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, the list goes on. We're also meant to imitate Christ in every other walk of life as well. So then, if we are supposed to be these imitators of the great master teacher, what kind of teachers will we be? If we're supposed to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, where people are meant to look at us and see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, if we're really meant to teach people to lead them closer to God in the imitation of the master teacher, what does that look like? How on earth can we hope to have anywhere close to the same impact, even as a group? How can we hope to have the same type of impact on the world around us that Jesus had, that Paul was able to have serving as an imitator of Christ? And to answer those questions, obviously we need to look at the example of the great master teacher. But before we do that, I want to talk to you, mention at least, a very undervalued feature that your smartphone has that you might not have ever even thought about. Has anybody ever used Google Maps? I'm assuming basically most everybody is familiar with what Google Maps is at least. Uh, Everybody for the most part has used Google Maps. Now, when you use it, most of the time I'm assuming you're trying to get directions to a place that maybe you don't know exactly how to get to. So if someone says, hey, meet me at this restaurant or hey, come over to the house tonight, you've never been there, you get the address from them and the first thing you do once you get that address is you type it in. At the top of the app, there's that little line that says, where do you want to go, or destination, and you type it in, and you hit go, and it gives you the directions. Something that we don't think about very much is the foresight of these developers at Google to make sure that your starting destination will, by default, set to your current location. So you could be at home, you could be at work, you could be visiting family uh, in the state of Georgia, and if you type in anywhere to get directions, it's going to automatically give you your starting location is where you're at. And it's a great thing because I want you to imagine if the starting location was automatically every time set to your house. And let's say you're visiting some family. My family lives in Georgia. Let's say I'm visiting family in Georgia and I've got to drive and I'm supposed to meet them at the aquarium. And I don't know how to get there. And I type in, I want to go to the aquarium, go. And it says, it's going to take you three and a half hours. Well, hang on a second. I'm literally five miles from the aquarium. Why do I have to drive all the way to Montgomery and come back up here? Certainly our starting point is just as important as our destination. We have to know where we're starting and we have to know where we're going if we want to have any success in completing the journey. Now, what does this have anything to do with teaching or the master teacher that is Jesus? Well, teaching as education in general has often, often been compared to either plotting a course or to building a bridge. The idea is you want to help lead people from point A without the certain knowledge or idea that you're trying to communicate all the way over to point B. And you can also take this idea in another sense of saying you're standing at point A with the knowledge and the ideas you have, and you're trying to get those all the way over to point B. So you're trying to navigate through all these things that you might have to do to get that person to understand what it is you're trying to teach. And certainly we all understand that we don't learn in the same ways, right? Some of us are visual learners, some of us are auditory learners, some of us like to learn with our hands and actually do things. There are different ways that all of us learn. So a teacher, if they're any good at what they're doing, they try to, they try to help out their listeners by doing teaching in ways that they can understand. 
So the first part of that is understanding our starting point. If we're going to talk about how we're going to teach people, the first thing we make sure we need to make sure we understand is where we're starting to begin with. And to do that, let's go to John chapter 1. If our example is going to be this great master teacher of Christ, what was Jesus' starting point for the teachings that he brought? What, what was his whole vision? What was the goal? What was the, what was the point behind everything that he taught? Can we find a point like that? Well, in John 1, 1, we find the starting point for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to say that everything that was created was created through him. Now let's fast forward to John chapter 3. Jesus is having a meeting under the cloak of darkness with a man named Nicodemus, who is supposed to be a teacher of Israel. He's on the Jewish Sanhedrin. He is a leader, a spiritual leader of the nation of Israel, a political leader of the nation of Israel. And he meets with Jesus under the cloak of darkness, and he's going to address him as teacher in John chapter 3. Let's look in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you have done unless God is with him. And a conversation ensues about becoming a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to tell him that you have to be born of the Spirit and of water to get into the kingdom. Nicodemus is very confused. Jesus is going to wind up telling him that eventually the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone can be saved. And he's going to allude to Moses holding up the serpent in the wilderness that everyone looked at in order to be healed uh, from the snake bites that they received. But then we get to verse 16. And this is the verse we all know. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. You see, the starting point for Jesus was with God. Jesus comes from God, and that is going to be foundational. If we want to have any hope of teaching in the way Jesus did or teaching the things that Jesus did, we first have to know the simple fact, uh, simple yet profound fact, that, God, that Jesus does, in fact, come from God. God sent his son. The son is the messenger. The son is the one who is sent out by God. And not only is he sent directly from God, but he's sent in love. This is the first important component of his starting point. He was sent in love. You notice it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And certainly we would say this love of the Father passes on to the Son, right? We know that Jesus in the Gospel of John will later tell his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, love others as I have loved you. By this others will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus, when he came to teach, one of his underlying principles was the sheer fact that he came in the love of God in a love that is deeper than any of us can fathom. It is a love that was willing to overlook the great sins of Israel all the way through history up to that point. Time and time again, the Israelite people had betrayed God. God says to them, we were like a married couple uh, in the days of our youth, and then you went out and you betrayed me. Not only once, but time and time and time and time again. And our reaction normally when someone betrays us like that is to do what? I want nothing to do with you. Nothing at all. And we might even uh, send our wrath and our judgment on people like that. God's response is, he gave his only son to die for them. And not just die for them, but to be humiliated and tortured to the highest point that you possibly could at this point in history. So we 
do not need to overlook the fact that the master teacher taught from a place of being sent by God in the love of God. So when we are attempting to teach people about Christ, we don't need to already mess this up at step zero and be going to people not in the name of God and not in the love of God. Certainly, if Jesus was sent in the name and love of God, we must be as well. But not only was he sent in love, we know verse 16 so well, I don't know that any of us here can say that we've memorized verse 17. And if you have, that's fantastic, but... We don't typically continue on for the rest of this paragraph. Let's see what Jesus has to say as he teaches Nicodemus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. It is very important to realize that not only did God send Jesus in love, but God did not send Jesus here to condemn the world. And this is Jesus himself telling you that. This is not my idea or my interpretation. This is Jesus himself saying, God did not send me to this world to condemn it. And it makes a whole lot of sense. And Jesus explains it. You know why he didn't send Jesus to condemn the world? Because Adam and Eve and the serpent took care of that a long time ago. The world was already condemned when Jesus came. So God is not sending more condemnation. Now certainly there is definitely the component of justice and righteousness and wrath in the message of God. And we will get there. But Jesus was sent primarily to save the world, not to condemn it. So if we are going to be teaching in the name of Christ and after the example of Christ, before we ever go out and open our mouths to anyone, before we ever start trying to teach anyone by our actions, we need to be well aware of the fact that we are sent on this mission by God for Matthew chapter 28. We're trying to go out and to teach the world, not for our own sake, not for our own words, but with the words of God, for the sake of God. We're doing that with the love of God, meaning we would be willing to lay down our lives at any moment for the person over there that just spit on us because we're a follower of God. Don't forget that Jesus, as he was being nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's willing to die not only for his friends and those who followed him, but for his enemies. Now, I wonder sometimes if we're willing to show the same amount of patience and forgiveness and love for our perceived opponents today. Well, if we are teaching in the manner that the master teacher taught, we will always be teaching with that focus, with that motivation of the best interest of the other person, and that is their eternal salvation. You see, because that's the point B here in this analogy. We're trying to take people from, from where they are. We're trying to help lead them from where they are to this eternal salvation that Jesus talks about in John three sixteen. Why did God send his son into the world? So that whoever believes in him might not die, but have eternal life. And that's the point B that we are trying to take people to. But before we talk about how we get people there, we have one more thing we need to mention. Let's go to John chapter 7. So he's, Jesus is sent from God in the love of God to save the world, not to condemn the world. And so we should be uh, under the same impression when we go to teach others. But he's sent with the very words of God, much like the prophets of the Old Testament. Let's look at John chapter 7, starting in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, 
but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You see that Jesus is going to say, these words that I have for you, the teachings that I have for you are not mine. They are the one who sent me. They are God's. These words, these teachings come directly from God, and we would do very well to remember that the things that we are supposed to be teaching are the things from God. We're not meant to be teaching our own ideas, our own traditions, even the traditions that we might hold so closely to. We're not meant to teach anything other than the words of God himself. Nothing on our own authority, but the things on the authority of God. You see, in Christ, we don't have this sense of authority or superiority over other people in our teaching. We are merely guides that try to lead people to the one teacher. And this is why Jesus told the crowd in Matthew 23, you shouldn't call anyone rabbi because you have one teacher. And that one teacher is the master teacher. So as we teach, we need to remember it's not our authority. We're not trying to get people to follow us. You remember we, we already mentioned Paul. He says, be imitators of me. But that's not the end of the sentence. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The idea is we're not trying to get people just to follow us or to, to fill pews or to have these great events or these great programs or whatever. We are meant to lead people straight to the words of God because of what's at stake. Now, obviously, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out the fact here that you cannot do this. You have to figure this out at the starting point. You can't do any of this teaching unless you first have any sort of clue what you're talking about, right? Ask anybody that's ever been put on the spot to answer a question that they didn't know the answer to. You cannot answer a question with anything other than the words I don't know, but it's just simple common logic, right? You cannot answer a question that you do not hold the answers to. You cannot teach something that you yourself do not already know. So, when Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, we have some knowledge assumed already, right? We should all be competent enough in the scriptures in order to teach other people how to come to Christ. Now, certainly we can go for encouragement to our brothers and sisters. We can go for help. Uh, iron sharpens iron. But at the end of the day, we should be capable enough to where if we are meant impromptu to have a discussion with someone about how to come to Christ, we should know well enough how to teach somebody that. Because after all, if we are in Christ, we have said, I'm giving up every, I'm committing my entire life to follow Jesus. Well, do you know what he says? Yeah, I know a few things of what he said. Have you read the Gospels? No. Now, hang on a second. You're going to tell me you've devoted your entire life to the teachings of this one man and you don't even know what he said. We've never read the Gospels. If we've never read all four of the Gospels, if we've never read the entirety of the Bible, we cannot, in honesty, say that we live our lives according to the words of the Bible. If we have not read the words of the Bible, then we cannot factually say that we live by them. Now, certainly it's one thing to read them, and it's another thing to study them, as Paul encourages Timothy to do in both letters. In 1 Timothy, he tells him to make sure that he is persistent in guarding the truth that has been entrusted to him. Then in 2 Timothy, that we all know so well, he says, do your best or study to show yourself approved. 
a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And the same should be said for all of us. We should be prepared and ready to rightly handle, to rightly teach the word of truth. May we never be guilty of saying things that God didn't say. And this was the sin of the uh, false prophets in Jeremiah's time. If you know anything about the history in Jeremiah, this is one of the worst periods uh, for Jewish history. The Babylonians are about to come in and wipe out Jerusalem. In fact, for a period in Jeremiah, they're stuck in the city and they might be resorting to cannibalism because they can't get any food. Uh, So a lot of terrible things are going on here. But in this time period, it's important to know you have men like Jeremiah who are saying, and excuse me for paraphrasing here, but for the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase and summarize. Jeremiah says, basically, we have betrayed God. God says that we have betrayed him from the very beginning to now and we are about to get the punishment that we deserve unless in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, uh, God gives them this whole discourse on if you would turn and repent, if you would acknowledge what you've done is wrong and if you would repent of that and if you come back to me, then I will relent from this disaster. You have Jeremiah telling the people, trying to beg them. He is known as the weeping prophet because he is known for lamenting. The lamentations are his. He is, he is heartbroken that his people won't listen to him. You know who they're listening to? The rest of the prophets who are saying, it's no big deal. God's not going to punish us. In chapter 6 and in chapter 8, they're guilty of saying, uh, God says they're saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace, they're saying God's not going to come here and do this thing. The prophets are as the wind, and what they say are going to go the ways that the wind goes. They're going to be gone. May we never be found among those who are like these false prophets who don't really have the word of God but act like we do. Don't really know what God's word says or what God wants to say, but we say that we do Anyway, may we never be found among those. So once we firmly set this starting point, then we can start worrying about, okay, well, what strategies am I going to use to teach people? Like very practically speaking, how can I start a conversation? How can I talk to someone about these things without uh, getting them so irate that they won't even listening to me? But the better that we recognize, the better that we recognize that the teachings that we're supposed to teach are not our own, the better that we recognize that we have been sent on this mission by God in the love of God, not to condemn the world, but to help seek and save the lost, and the better that we can know the commands of Christ himself, the more success we will all have as we try to teach those in our communities. The more we clarify and understand our starting point, the more prepared we will be to reach that final destination. So let's talk for just a few minutes, and I'm very, very quickly run out of time. Well, I've got 10 minutes left, so we're going to fly through the rest of this. Um, how do we get to point B? So what's on the road? What kind of turns do we take? What are we going to do? We're going to notice a few general things. I wish we had time to get specific, uh, so please pardon the, the general nature of these points we're about to make, but if we have more time, I'd love to go more deeply into them. But generally speaking, if we want to have success in the manner in which we teach, after coming to that starting point, number one, I think we have to teach the truth, Right? Jesus taught the truth. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul encourages us to teach the truth 
in love to one another. We should be teaching the truth in love. And I think one of the best examples that we're going to find from Christ is in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, Jesus is going to meet a rich young man. You know the story already. Jesus meets this rich young man. Now, what you might not know is that he asked Jesus, teacher, there's that word again, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says to him, basically, again, I'm paraphrasing, keep the commandments. And he says, I have kept the commandments from my youth. And Jesus looks at him, and the scripture says, Mark writes, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And right after that, Jesus breaks the bad news to him. Again, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says, you need to sell what you have and give to the poor. And the rich man goes away sad because Jesus gives him that bad news of, hey, your heart is way more set on the riches that you have than it is on actually pleasing God. You're way more concerned about just having all your ducks in a row than you are about making sure that God's happy with the way you live your life. So Jesus, even though he loved him, he spoke the truth in love uh, because he was able to give him that bad news even from a place of love. Now, how we do that sometimes is very complicated and can be very tricky, but there are some precedents that Jesus has set that I think can make it a little bit easier for us to determine in which situation maybe uh, we can teach the truth in love and in which situations teaching the truth in love might uh, entail a little bit of harshness or things that people don't want to hear Jesus had a way, and I got this quote uh, from an article I read today by a man named uh, Charles Pope. He says this, Jesus had a way of comforting those who were afflicted and afflicting those who were comforted. And I thought that quote was very insightful, and he does just that. And when I think of Jesus comforting the afflicted, I think of John, the end of John chapter 7, beginning of John chapter 8. And barring a discussion about why that section is in brackets, you know the story there already. Jesus has brought a woman who's been caught in adultery, and they throw her down at the feet of Jesus and say, what do, you, what do you say we ought to do with her? Knowing the law of Moses that says she should be killed, they're trying to think of a way, how do we get the public against Jesus? We're going to, i tell you what we're doing, we're going to catch him in this trap. What do, you say we should, what do you say we should do with her, Jesus? He bends down, he writes something in the sand, and then you know what he says. He stands up and he says, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. And they all go away. Now, what's really interesting is that there was one person there who could have cast a stone. There was only one person there who was without sin that could have. For some reason, he did not. And he says to her, he says, woman, where are your accusers? Where did they go? Who accuses you? She says, no one. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. That is Jesus comforting the afflicted. You see, this woman was publicly humiliated. She had been uh, beaten and dragged down there to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus tells her the truth. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And at times, certainly, it's more appropriate for us to teach the truth with this kind of love, to emphasize the fact that, hey, even if you are, no matter what's in your past, no matter how, what horrible things you have done to this point, no matter what you're involved in now, no matter how much society marginalizes you, no matter how much society makes fun of you, no matter how much society says you're worth nothing and you're the scum of the earth, Jesus loves you. 
and he will save you. And Paul has told us in Ephesians chapter 2 that our salvation is not the result of works so that no man may boast. You know what he says, right? It's a free gift of grace. And Paul, of all people, is most grateful for that because he is the self-proclaimed chief of sinners. So certainly, at times, it is most appropriate for us to, to help those who are afflicted. And I wonder if we can think of any groups now that fall into that category. People whose society says are no good. People whose society marginalizes. People whose society makes fun of. Don't you think that, don't you think that Christians who are following this example of the master teacher would be the first ones to run to them with the comfort of the gospel? Don't you think that Christians would be the very first ones? Don't you think they would line up on the streets in order to tell these people, look, there is a God and he does love you and he wants what's best for you. Now, you, have, you can't continue your life in sin. We're not going to trade the truth here for things that just feel good. Certainly would never accuse Jesus of doing that. Certainly we would never accuse Paul of doing that. But there is truth in the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you expect Christians to bring that to people who needed it the most, not being the first ones to add on to the hate, to add on to the marginalization, to add on to the finger pointing and saying, uh, you're no good, you're worthless? Wouldn't you expect Christians to be the one that, say, that says, God loves you just as you are, but he doesn't want you to stay just as you are? Sometimes, though, Jesus would, we, we've already talked about how he would help the afflicted or comfort the afflicted, but a lot of times he would also afflict the comfortable. If you don't believe that, you can go look at Matthew chapter 23. For some reason, Jesus was not quite as gentle with the Pharisees. Jesus was not quite as reserved or as quite as gentle in the way that he broke the truth about the Pharisees. That's the chapter where he says again and again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. In this way, in this way, in this way, in this way. He's telling them the truth, and it hurts. He's telling them the truth out of love, but he's still hitting them with some pretty harsh truths in a way that's not similar, so similar to the way that he interacted with that woman who was caught in adultery, or the woman at the well, for that matter, or for Matthew, or for any of the tax collectors and sinners that he would regularly sit at the table with and eat with, drawing all this criticism it's interesting to me that the times most when you find in the life of Christ that he chose to really stress the truth of the gospel that brings judgment and wrath and condemnation, the only times he chose to stress that were when he were talking to the people who said they served God but really didn't. You don't find Jesus going into the house of sinners, a term that's often used, social pariah. I don't even know what that means. I just hear it a lot. But he's going to the house of these types of people, and he's not turning over tables there. The only place he turned over tables was in the temple of God, where the people of God were supposed to be doing the things of God in the ways of God. So before we start saying, well, now hang on a second. Now, I know there's love and grace, but there's also judgment. And we need to be, when people are messing up and when people are living in, in these all sinful ways, we need to make sure we're stressing the judgment. And, and we don't need to always be all uh, fluff and love and grace and kindness. And certainly not. We need to make sure we are balanced and we're teaching the whole truth. But when we choose to emphasize things, I think it's very interesting that the only group of people Jesus chooses to have that kind of teaching with, the only people he is that kind kind of harsh with are the people who are supposed to be the people of God. And that really hurts. 
That really hurts being somebody who, was, who grew up, who grew up always going to church. These were the people who, who were giving the impression, every pretense of serving God, but they absolutely were not. They looked good on the outside, but Jesus said, hey, they're sitting in Moses' seat, so you need to listen to what they say, but do not. Do not live the way that they live. These were the ones to whom Jesus brought the harshest judgments. And we have one minute left, and we have a whole page left, so let's get through this really quickly. But Will also told me that I would be in trouble if I didn't go 15 minutes over. So something, we'll, we'll shoot for maybe two. Um, if we're going to teach like Jesus, we need to make sure that we're teaching to change people's hearts, not just their actions. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, all the way through Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not just focused with what people do. And a great example is the first thing that he's going to talk about after the Beatitudes, uh, being salt and the light, and then after fulfilling the law. The very next thing he says is, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. I think all of us can agree murder is bad. That is a bad decision to make. That is a bad action. We do not need to do that. And if you follow God, you don't need to do it. Great. Jesus said, look, it's not just that. The reason that we don't murder, he says, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And anyone who says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus says, look, it's not just about the decision in, right there in the moment of if you get really mad, am I going to kill this person or am I not? And then he's going to go on to talk about adultery, and maybe that's a little more relatable for everybody, uh, where he says, look, it's not just about whether or not in the moment, if you have the opportunity to cheat on your spouse, it's not just about in the moment making the right decision, it's about what kind of person you are before that. If you're, it's not the case to where you can lust after someone and daydream about them all day long and in your heart be a lustful corrupt person but then somehow have enough willpower in the moment to where if you have a chance you don't do it Jesus says that's not going to cut it what I want is people who aren't lustful in their hearts you got to change the heart because the actions that we commit are they not indicative of what's in our heart Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth will speak out of the abundance of the heart our actions will flow So it's not about just having a great willpower when we come to Christ. We're not teaching people to self-help. We're not teaching people to, hey, look, I know you really want to go out and party and drink every weekend, college kids. I know that's what you want to do. I know you got a a boyfriend or girlfriend that looks really good, and I know what you want to do. But you can want to do all that stuff all you want, but you just got to fight it harder than you did before. When you come to Christ, now you fight it harder than you did before. That's not what Christ teaches Jesus teaches, I don't want you to want all these things just like you did before. Now we got to change the attitudes. It's character formation, not just decision making. Jesus doesn't give you an incredible willpower. He changes, he changes the way you perceive these things. He changes our attitudes. He changes the way we look at the world. So now, no longer when somebody wrongs us, are we quick to get angry? No, we're quick to be patient and we're quick to show them the love of Christ. Now, when, when all these situations arise, we are quick to follow the example of our creator, not to do what we wanted to do beforehand. And you can read in Colossians chapter 3, you can read all through Ephesians, you can read through Galatians, you can read through Romans. Paul hits that point every time he writes to those early Christians. When we teach people, we need to be teaching them not just to have a great willpower, we need to be teaching them to change their attitudes and their actions. And we'll, we'll skip down uh, to the bottom here as we close. We're leaving out a lot of really good stuff, but 
Sorry, actually, we'll close with this point and we'll leave out the rest. Uh, if we consider the end of Matthew 28, uh, where he says, make disciples. Making disciples is a lot more than just getting them in the waters of baptistry, of the baptistry, is it not? I would challenge you to remember that Jesus, after the apostles agreed to follow him, he kept teaching them for three years. It wasn't, okay, you're going to commit to me, you're going to follow me, okay, good, see ya. He kept teaching them. Making disciples is a lot more than just a sales pitch to get somebody in the baptistry. It's a beginning of a relationship. It's the beginning of a lifelong life that has changed, or a lifelong uh, lifestyle that is changed by the example of Christ. I really appreciate you inviting me to be here. I'm sorry that I went a few minutes over. I think just three minutes over, so we're good. Uh, a few minutes over. Uh, but let's close with a prayer, and then we'll come back for the devotional. God, we come to you tonight, and Lord, as we think about all the ways in which you taught and all the ways in which you still teach today, Lord, we are truly humbled, and we recognize just how much we need to lean on your example if we're going to not only let ourselves be taught and let our own hearts be changed, but certainly if we're going to try to change the hearts of others. God, I pray that you'll be with all of us here in Montgomery with all the Christians here as we strive to reach this community. Lord, we know that, that all the communities in our country right now desperately need um, the changing touch that comes from your word. And Lord, we pray that you can use all of us, that you will use every last one of us to make that happen. God, we pray that we can be the salt. We pray that we can be the light. We pray that we can teach people in the way that you would have them be taught here and now in Montgomery. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity we've had to come together and to study. And we pray that you will uh, be with us all until we can come together again. It's the name of your son that we pray. Amen.